Welcome to the time change. How y'all doing? Yeah, you're okay? Yeah. First service was worse. <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, I'm pretty sure, though, that the communists thought of this time change thing. Cripple our democracy. All right. <clears throat> well, this morning we are going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 4 is where we're going to start. And I, because I am a control freak, I'm going to take over the PowerPoint. But uh, unfortunately, that means I can't blame anyone else. So, all right, there we go. All right. And presto, changeo, there we are. Okay, so we are talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly. This is still in Jeremy's series about David and this story has to do with David as well this morning and uh, as we begin I'm going to encourage you to use your church Bible uh, just an informal survey how many of you use some electronic version of the Bible when you're here on a Sunday morning a little bit more than first service so maybe about 40 percent of you so the rest of you guys are what we would call old school so that's cool retro um, use the old paper Bible, and the version that we have in our church is called the New American Standard uh, Bible. And uh, if you don't know a whole lot about Bibles, you might think a Bible is a Bible, but um, you would be mistaken. Um, you talk about old school Bibles, um, some of you may even have this with you, the King James Version. Uh, that is way old, old school, and if you ever open that up, and that's often if families hand Bibles down from generation to generation, it's almost always going to be the King James Version. Um, hard to read, hard to understand, but totally classic. What makes our Bible different from the King James Version? That has to do with what copy of the manuscripts was used to translate from Latin or from Greek or from Hebrew into English. And so for the King James Version, they used a manuscript, which was the oldest one that they had in the 1500s. So they were going as far back with the copies as they could. Since that time, we've discovered even older copies of the manuscripts. And so the thinking goes among scholars is that if you can find a really old copy, that's going to presumably be more reliable than copies that came later. So the New American Standard is one of the more modern translations that's based on the oldest copies of manuscripts that we can find. Um, and also, the translation theory or philosophy behind the New American Standard is a word-for-word -word translation. So that means that the scholars sit together, they translate from the Hebrew or the Greek, and then they come up with what they believe is the most appropriate word for that particular section in Scripture, and then they grab that English word and they put those words together into a syntax and a context which they believe is readable because Greek, the construction is different. Hebrew, the construction is different. So you've got scholars who are kind of putting words together in a phrasing that they believe uh, is readable enough but still is connected to those translations of those individual words. So the New American Standard, that's where they're coming from, which means that some of the phrases in here are a little cumbersome. Sometimes it's a little hard to follow. It doesn't always sound like the way that you talk or I would talk. 
But that's why, is because the cumbersome nature of the way that the translation works allows for the, the scholars to try to reduce the bias of their theology influencing how you should read Scripture. Um, one of my favorite translations from a readability standpoint is the New Living Translation. So those scholars also used the oldest manuscripts we can get our hands on, and they too translated from the original languages. But what the scholars did in that particular translation, the New Living Translation, is they um, translated phrase for phrase rather than word for word. <clears throat> so while it's still using the original language, the problem, some might say, is that you're getting more bias from the scholars because they're, they're telling you how you, they think you should read each phrase as you're going along. And um, so the downside is you might get more scholarly bias. The upside is it's way more readable, and therefore the understanding and the comprehension tends to go up. Um, but you're relying a lot on the scholarship that goes into each of those translations. And then in the 70s, there was the, a Bible called the Living Bible, different than the New Living Translation. So the original Living Bible is what's known as a paraphrase, and a paraphrase translation like the message from Eugene Peterson or the living translation, that doesn't even use original texts or languages, rather. The manuscripts aren't original. There's no um, word translations going on. It's starting with an English translation, and then from there it's paraphrasing those, that English translation to make it even more readable. So therefore, you have not necessarily a scholarly Bible in that it's not really helping you understand the original languages, um, and there's not scholarship in that way going into the text, but it tends to be a, a, an even more readable version of the scriptures. So that's why a Bible isn't a Bible isn't a Bible, and yet we can have different translations that are all very reliable and, and useful. Um, so if you're looking for translations that go word for word, New American Standard probably leads the pack in that type of translation. If you want a reliable but readable thought for thought, I would say probably the New Living Translation leads the pack. But for our purposes this morning, we'll be in the New American Standard, so some of our phrasing might be a little clunky, but um, we'll get through it. <laughs> and um, in 2 Samuel 4... Uh, is where we'll start. Pastor Jeremy uh, likes to give you guys an easy go of it. He'll put the scriptures up on the overheads. I'm going to make you work today. We're taking the training wheels off, okay? So you're going to have to keep up, and I think you can do it. It's a good practice to get into, moving around in scriptures, learning where things are, and uh, checking the source documents, as it were. Our very first point starts on the back of your outline. Every promise has a story. Every promise has a story. We're going to be reading this morning about a promise that David made and kept. But this is true about almost every promise. And as Jessica, my wife, and I we're getting to know each other, and we decided that we were going to get married. Different family cultures were at work in the new family that we were starting to raise. And one of the distinctives of our family cultures was the word promise and how it was used. So, for instance, if you had 
a meddling sibling who liked to play tricks and practical jokes, and they said to you, hey, did you know that you have to wake up an hour earlier tomorrow for church? You'd say, no, that's not right. Oh, yeah, better set your alarm. You're going to be late. So in that kind of dynamic, in Jessica's family, if you wanted to find out what is the truth, you would say to your sibling, you promise? And the promise was the trump card. That was that you have to tell me whether or not this is true or not. And so what happened in Jessica's family is if you promised, but you were lying, deceitful, then you got in trouble with mom and dad. Then it was like a lie. Then you were lying to your sibling, and that wasn't tolerated. And I thought, wow, that's different. In my house, it was just sort of like deceit all the time. <laughs> you just tried to get away with it, and you'd promise, and you'd be lying, and that'd be fun. <laughs> right? So um, out of those two approaches, um, we decided to go with her family's approach. Um, and so we used that in our home. Promised, you promised. That was the trump card. Are you telling the truth? And if you were, then... Um, if you weren't sure, rather, that's when the promise came in and helped. So promises are kind of a big deal. They're a big deal in our family, but I know that that's not the only family where promises are a big deal. And for King David, promises were a huge deal, and that's where our story starts. So let's turn over to page 218 in your pew Bible. We don't have pews, we have chairs, but that's an old term for the church Bible. So 2.18, we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 20. I know I told you 2 Samuel 4, but before we even get there, we have to back up and talk about the story from where this promise comes from, the promise we'll be talking about today. <clears throat> so this is uh, starting in verse 14, and if you have a Bible that has quotes, you'll notice that there are quotation marks here. So someone is being quoted. We'll find out who that is in a couple verses. The quote begins in verse 14. If I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord, that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Verse 16, so Jonathan made a covenant, says the NASB. You know what a covenant is? It's a promise. It's a solemn promise. So Jonathan made covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. Verse 17, Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. The story of this promise goes back to Jonathan and David and their friendship. So I am going to go over to my whiteboard, and we're going to set this up. Oops. You guys have been hearing about David. David comes from a tribe. The tribe is the tribe of Judah. If you know anything about the Old Testament, and Israel in particular, you know that there were 12 tribes in Israel. Benjamin was among them. Saul, K 
came from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin has a really sketchy background as a tribe. <clears throat> By the time of Saul, they were the smallest tribe. The reason they were the smallest tribe is because, if you read the book of Judges, they were a deviant tribe, specifically sexually deviant, so horrifically so that what they did at the end of the book of Judges as a tribe ended up really horrifying the rest of the tribes. And so they gathered warriors and fought and killed off almost all of the tribe of Benjamin because of what Benjamin did at the end of the book of Judges. So Benjamin not only is the smallest tribe, it's got a really bad reputation among the 12 tribes. So it's sort of like the ugly stepchild that nobody wants to talk about in the nation of Israel. Saul ends up coming from the tribe of Benjamin, and what does God do? He takes this ugly stepchild that nobody wants to talk about, and he creates in that a monastic, uh, not a monastic, a monarchy, dynastic line that comes out of the tribe of Judah. So he takes this little awful tribe, and he turns it into the jewel or the centerpiece of the entire nation. Now, I use the word nation, but the Israelites didn't think of themselves as a nation. They thought of themselves as individual tribes. The probably closest we could get to that in the U.S. was in the colonial period, even before uh, the Revolutionary War, when the colonies thought of themselves as their own kind of nation state, and then there was this confederation of nation states, but you had Rhode Island or Delaware making contracts with nation states, and then you had Virginia making separate trading contracts with, with the same nation states. So you had different treaties that were being agreed upon because they didn't think of themselves as needing to cede authority or sovereignty to one another. They operated with sovereignty together as peers or equals in their trading, um, for instance. So that's how the colonial... Um, environment started. That's really what was going on in the nation of Israel at the time, is these were chunks of land that were controlled by clans or tribes, and those tribes kind of decided what happened in their borders. They ran things the way they wanted to run them, and if that didn't match up with their neighbors, that was fine, because that's not really our tribe, and that's not really our issue. So Benjamin was part of a confederation of 10 tribes that were in the north, and that was different than Judah, which was part of a confederation of two tribes in the south. So there was this north-south thing going on for the entirety of the, the life of the nation of Israel. And if you know the story of Israel, you know that that north-south division during the time of Rehoboam, which is David had a son who was Solomon, Solomon had a son who was Rehoboam. During that time, that simmering conflict and schism just absolutely erupted. Well, that was true even before Saul was named king. But once Saul's named king, it elevates the status of Benjamin. It elevates the status of that confederation of ten tribes in the north. And everybody likes the honor, prestige, recognition that comes with being connected to this dynastic line in one way or another. It's a little bit like how you feel when your team wins 
in March Madness or the Super Bowl or whatever it is, you kind of like that because you feel somehow a part of that. That same sense of uh, esteem and connection was going on for this group in Israel. So we've got tribe of Benjamin, Saul comes out of that tribe. Who comes out of the tribe of, of Judah? Well, that's Jesse. Jesse is probably older than Saul, but this is the generation that we're talking about. So Jesse gives birth to, among other people, David. Saul gives birth to Jonathan. Now, Saul has lots and lots and lots and lots of wives, so he's got lots and lots of princes. But the prince among princes was Jonathan. He was the heir apparent. He was the one who was going to continue ruling as the primary leader in Saul's household. But unfortunately, what happens is that because of who Saul is and how he's operating, God decides to stop using the line of Saul to rule the nation of Israel. He moves from the tribe of Benjamin to a southern tribe, the tribe of Judah. Then he finds this kid who's probably at the time that Samuel shows up at Jesse's house, is probably 10 or 12 years old when he gets anointed to be the future king of Israel. Unfortunately, when you're anointed to be the king of a nation, but you have no legal dynastic claim, that's like a target. <laughs> you get a bullseye put on you because now you have royal ambition and you are going to someday supposedly supplant the current line with your own line. Usually that's not okay with the people in power. I mean, you just follow the story throughout human history in any culture, in any history. England would be one of the ones that this is particularly true in. Uh, dynasties fight to hold on to power. And that's exactly what was happening here. Saul, the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's family, that whole line, they were, nobody's taking this away from us. I don't care what you say God said, we're holding on to it. If you're going to take it, it's going to be over my cold, dead body, right? <clears throat> and so the problem here is that Saul has control of all of the weaponry and the ability to mobilize and organize fighters and the legitimacy of being established by Samuel and God as king. David has only the visit that Samuel did by himself and anointed David, not in a ceremony in front of the nation in any way, but rather at his home, in front of his grumbling brothers, right? That's it. That's all the pomp and circumstance that David had. So David doesn't have access to the mechanisms to create an army, recruit an army, pay for an army, which Saul had the royal estate to use to pay, to feed and mobilize an army. This is a much larger version of David and Goliath once David is anointed to be king. Saul realizes pretty quickly that David has been selected by God to supplant him, and that's not okay with Saul. However, David and Jonathan forge a friendship that moves way beyond uh, chums or pals. These guys become blood brothers, more or less. 
uh, they become fast friends. And their dedication to one another um, supersedes David's loyalty to almost anyone else. So because of that, Jonathan says to David what we just read about in 1 Samuel. Jonathan recognizes that David has been selected by God to replace him, Jonathan. And that is okay with Jonathan. Jonathan gives up the throne and he says, I'm okay, I'm not going to fight you for it, David. You get to have it. But when you get it, will you promise that you don't wipe me out? Don't kill all of my children. Don't kill my wives. Don't kill my house. Will the house of David respect my house? Now, if you know anything about human history, you know that when a new dynasty takes over, standard protocol is to wipe out the previous dynasty. You don't want any little princes gathering the force together and using the legitimacy of the previous dynasty as a stepping stone to begin creating friction, division, and hopefully usurpation of the new dynasty. So you just kill everybody, even cousins and second cousins. You don't want any legal claim rising up against this new dynasty. That happens in China. That happened in England. It happens all over the world. It even happens today. That's standard operating procedure. When you've got a new line in power, that's what you do with the old line. Jonathan recognizes that and says to David, could you not do that in my case? And David says, yes, I will keep you alive. I'm not going to wipe out your family. I'm not going to wipe out your house. Why is that significant? Because Jonathan is the heir apparent. There's lots of other princes, but Jonathan's the primary prince. So a line coming from David is the most legitimate line to the throne on Saul's side of the family. And you've got 10 tribes who are happy to organize under the banner of Jonathan's family. So what David is doing when he is promising Jonathan is that he is committing himself to civil friction on a good day and outright warfare on bad days with the tribes in the north who are agitating for the support of Saul and his family and the tribes in the south, and particularly Judah and David's line. So David is agreeing, Jonathan, I will let that happen because of how I feel about you. That's a significant statement. It's a really big deal. It's extremely costly, and that will come up um, in our uh, talk today. So looking at that promise as the root for David's integrity, I want to take us to point number two. And point number two, if I can get there, is that every promise has, oh, no, we already know that. This is the one we want. A promise is built on integrity. So how do you define integrity? I think it can be defined in various ways. For our purposes this morning, I'd like to define integrity as the inside matching the outside. The inside matching the outside. So for instance, if you come to church this morning and I'm shaking your hand and you're telling me how nice it is to see me and all that kind of stuff, that's great. But if I were a fly on the wall at your home or in your workplace and you're swearing like a sailor, 
um, and you're verbally abusive to the people around you, what we could say is that your, your inside doesn't match your outside. That is, that who you are at church doesn't match who you are when you're not at church. So that means you're maintaining two separate facades or two different versions of yourself. That takes energy. Some of us have multiple versions of ourselves that we bring out in different contexts. But for David, he just wanted to be the same guy all the time. The guy that you met at church is the guy that you'd meet on the shop floor, is the guy that you'd meet hunting, is the guy that you'd meet driving around town. That guy, David wanted to be the same person all the time. And his promise was built on that sense of sameness, that his promise came out of his sense of who he was, so that his inside did match his outside. And it was built on his sense of being honorable, and being forthright. That really came out of his relationship with God. If we look at 1 Samuel, since we were in 1 Samuel 20, if we just turn over the page from 1 Samuel 20 to 1 Samuel 24, I'd like to read quickly a story that demonstrates how David's integrity operated, why it operated the way that it did. So look at verse 1 of chapter 24 of 1 Samuel. Samuel. Now, when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. And then Saul took 3,000 cho chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. Not sure where that is. He came to the sheepfolds on the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went into this cave to relieve himself. Now David and his men happened to be sitting in the inner recesses of this very same cave. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. And then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe, secretly. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose and left the cave and went on his way. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you. But my eye had pity on you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now, my father, see, indeed, See the edge of your robe in my hand? 
for in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you, know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands. And I've not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me, may my, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. And after whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? The Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me, and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me, while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Now, behold, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. So now, swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name and, uh, from my father's household. And David swore to Saul. And Saul went to his home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. <laughs> Why? Because Saul can't be trusted. <laughs> David's promise to Jonathan is now repeated to Saul. And Saul says out of his own mouth, I get it. God has removed my family from the dynasty. Will you not do standard operating procedure? Will you not wipe out my name and my family? And David promises. So David is promising to keep the line of Saul alive. And why is it that David is doing this? Because of David's view of God, because of his view of the sovereignty of God. Because David realizes that violence used to control is done in spite of God, not because of God. What else does integrity give you? It gives strength, conviction, and confidence. That's what integrity does for you. It gives you strength. It allows you to be a person of conviction. It allows you to be a person of confidence. Are you a parent? Are you a grandparent? Are you a foreman? Are you a supervisor? Are you an employee? If you are any of those things, you are a person of influence. You are influencing spheres of people. You will influence well when you are influencing from a place of integrity that the conviction that you have comes because your inside matches your outside, that the confidence that you have comes because your inside matches your outside. 
integrity allows you to leave a legacy and make an impact in the world in which you move, the spheres of responsibility and influence that you have. So a promise is built on integrity. Let's look at number three. A promise is costly and therefore valuable. A promise is costly and therefore it's valuable. So when I asked my wife Jessica to marry me, I presented her with a gold ring with a diamond in it. I was in college when I asked her to marry me, and 12 months before that, I began putting away money to buy that ring so that when the time came, I could give her a real ring with a real diamond. Because I was in college, I had no money, right? And I went to a jeweler. I went to the same jeweler that my dad bought his engagement ring from for my mom. And I went to that same jeweler who also sold rings to my grandparents. So this guy was like 112 years old when I got my hands on him. Nice guy. He put that little jeweler thing in his eyeball, tottered over, and he showed me in this showcase all these different diamonds that I could buy. And then I told him what my price range was, and he put those away, and he took out other ones. <laughs> and he told me what they were and what the clarity was and what the inclusions were and what the color was, and he kind of helped me understand how diamonds are graded and valued. And then he said, so if we look at this one in your price range, you can see here, and then he put the little jeweler thing in my eyeball, he said, you see this little black flake in there? And I had to look for a long, long time. Oh, yeah, I guess I do see that under this giant magnus, you know, mi microscope. He said, well, that's, that's an imperfection, that's an inclusion, but what you do see here is there's a lot of clarity and the color is really, really clear. So he said, this, this diamond is actually a really nice, solitaire little diamond. This would be perfect. And I said, great. So I started paying for 12 months on this miniature little rock, right? Lots and lots of cost. Why? Because it's actually quite valuable. And that's how value is often determined. How costly is it? So things that are truly valuable are actually quite costly. That was true in the world of diamonds, but it was also true in the world of the heart, in integrity. A promise is based on integrity. It's based on your sense of who you are. It's based on that sameness. And being the same all the time and having that integrity, that's really costly. It's much easier to pretend and be a different person depending on who you're with. That's way easier in the short run. In the long run, it has an, an intense emotional cost to it. I would liken it to paying with everything on the credit card from an emotional and spiritual standpoint, and the interest just keeps accruing. And when it comes time to pay, it's usually awful. <laughs> so being a different person in different environments, you will pay on that eventually, but in the short run, it is cheaper and it is easier. But the more costly route is to have integrity and to have the promises that you make come out of that part of who you are. It's worth the trouble. 
because it's tied to your integrity, what's worth the trouble? The costliness of the promise. Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 4. Our very first point today was that every promise has a story. We've been setting the stage for the promise of this story. There's one last piece of the story that we need to understand that David had made. Now, when Ish-bosheth, verse 1 of chapter 4, 2 Samuel. That's on page 229 if you've got a pew Bible. Ish-bosheth, he's the most senior son of Saul that's still alive because by this point, both Saul and Jonathan are dead. They died in battle on the same day. One of the things that happens when the king and the heir apparent die in the same battle is it starts a race for the throne. Anyone with the ability to mobilize in that moment of crisis who has some kind of legal legitimate claim to the throne is going to be putting together a hit squad, killing everybody else off so that they're the last one standing. So when you're in the palace and you're, for instance, a nurse that takes care of a princeling, you know that the clock has started to tick on the, the hit squad that's going to come for your princeling. And they're not going to stop at just the princeling. They're, they're going to kill you. They're going to kill everybody. So when Saul and Jonathan die, everybody in the palace freaks and bails. And so the nurses take their little princeling that's their charge, and they flee for their lives. So that happens, and that's happening in parallel to, to what's happening here. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner, who was the head of the armies of Saul, had died. He lost courage, and all Israel was disturbed. Not, not necessarily the, the, the bottom southern two tribes, but the ten tribes in the north have now lost their military commander, they've lost their king, they've lost the heir apparent. It seems like this dynasty is starting to crumble. And then Saul's son had two men who were commanders of whatever, blah, 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 and we're going to keep going. And look at verse 4. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him and fled, and it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame. And his name was... <laughs> Mephibosheth. It's not a name that seems to be used very often these days. Never makes the list of the top ten most popular names in any century. Mephibosheth. Okay, so Jonathan must have been in a bad mood or he delegated that task when it came time to naming this one. Mephibosheth. So he's five years old when he becomes lame because his nurse, in her haste to get out of the palace, drops him. And you think, most five-year-olds I know could run right alongside of her just fine, right? Well, that's because they've gotten all their inoculations and they've been fed very, very well. We're talking about antiquity. We're talking about an incredibly high mortality rate. We're talking about nutrition that is not what we know today. So sickly little spindly little kids, probably par for the course, even at five years old, that she could pick him up 
in this spindly little kid. And she runs. They don't set his legs well, and he ends up crippled in some way. So that's the last piece of the story. So then if we turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9, which is just a page over, so let's turn there. Let's look at verse 1. Yeah, we're going to do that. Oops, there we go. Starting in verse 1. Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul (laughs) to do what with? That I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. So David is needing to find out. It's not enough for David just to have made these promises and then be passive about it. David's doing the work, the spade work, of turning over with the question, is there anyone left that I can make good on this promise with? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? (laughs) Who's asking? Uh, (laughs) And he said, I am your servant. Okay, he's he's switching teams apparently. (laughs) Verse 3, The king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? Now, Did David have guile? Was he being deceitful? If you knew David, you would know the answer is probably not. No, that's not really how David operated. But if you know the story of the birth of Jesus, there was a king, wasn't there, in Judah, who pretended to be interested in worshiping the Messiah, in whose mouth was guile and deceit, whose heart was murderous, Why? Because he's doing standard operating procedure. You kill any threat to the throne, including if it means killing all of the male inhabitants of Bethlehem aged two years and under. You just do it. So Ziba is having to trust the character of this man, David, at this point. He's completely out on a limb, and he doesn't know if his life is now forfeit either. And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. Probably not going to be on a war horse leading an army. Probably not. But that's not a concern to David. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he's in the house of Macher, the son of Amaliel, in Lodabar. I don't know, it sounds like Lodi, Lodi. <laughs> Verse 5, Then King David sent, and they brought him from all those places, And verse 6, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David. (laughs) How do you imagine he was feeling at this moment? What do you think was going on in his head? Okay, gigs up. It's come. This is my time. Here I am before the king. What does he do? The same thing you would do. He fell on his face, and he prostrated himself, and he said to David, and, and David said, Mephibosheth, and he said, Here is your servant. (laughs) I'm on your team, buddy. Verse 7, David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. 
It wasn't a secret. It was an open secret that Jonathan and David were best friends. Saul knew it. The whole countryside knew it. So when David says this to Mephibosheth, something probably lights go on in Mephibosheth's head, and he thinks, maybe I haven't been brought here to be executed. And David goes further, and I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. What a beautiful thing that David is doing. He's inviting Mephibosheth to join the princes at his table. Join my family. Eat as one of us. Have standing and status as one of us. This just isn't done. It, doesn't, it isn't done today. It hasn't been done through the centuries. It wasn't done in, in antiquity. It just wasn't done. David is way off the map right now with how to deal with a previous monastic dynasty. And verse 8, again, he, Mephibosheth, prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? And then the king called Saul's servant Ziba, and he said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant shall do. So Mephibosheth ate at the king's table as one of the king's sons. Verse 12, Mephibosheth had a young son himself, whose name was Micah, a little more conventional. And all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. Verse 13, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. And now he was lame in both feet. For David, this promise was costly. <clears throat> I grew up in a couple hours south of here in a community that was near Oconomowoc. And one of the things that was true of Oconomowoc uh, maybe 40 years ago is that it was the repository of a large tract of land, arable, arable farm land, that was owned by the Pabst family. <clears throat> and the Pabst family cultivated this crop for probably, I don't know, 60, 80 years. And these are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres in the Oconomowoc area. Actually, I-94 runs right through what is some of the Pabst farm um, acreage. And when I think about Mephibosheth inheriting the royal estate of Saul, I think about the Pabst farm. I think about all that cultivating land that Mephibosheth now gets to, to get the income from. And in antiquity, if you had land, you were generating income because you could rent the land, you could sell the produce, you could raise livestock because you had somewhere for them to graze. So you're able to control industry when you control land. If you don't have any land, then you have to do what Joseph, Jesus' father, did, which was to develop a skill or a trade. And then you could generate income by serving other people through that skill or that trade. 
not Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth now officially has control of the royal estate of Saul. That's a huge financial boon to Mephibosheth and to Saul's side of the family at the expense of what David really was entitled to. So David gives up a costly opportunity here. It costs him specifically. Why? Because it's tied to his integrity. Now, I debated whether or not I should tell this story because I've never told this story to an audience before. And the way first service went, I ran out of time, and I took that as a sovereign nod from God not to tell it. I'm rethinking that thought, and it might be a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a, it's a good story. <laughs> um, in 1990, I discovered paintballs and paintball guns, um, actually probably in 1989. <clears throat> and that was a really cool discovery for me as a teenager. Um, if you know about paintball guns, you know that they shoot out a you know, big round ball full of paint at high velocity. And when it hits you, it explodes and leaves a bruise. Um, the balls are usually traveling at around 300 feet per second, <clears throat> 280 to 300 feet per second. Um, that's enough to break the skin um, at about 50 yards, um, at 300, uh, 50 feet rather, at, at 300 feet per second. <clears throat> um, so I got together a bunch of guys, we all got these paintball guns, and we started shooting at each other on the weekends. And I had come from one of these get-togethers on the weekend, and I had in my car um, all my paintball gear, and I, all my CO2 was, I still had CO2, I still had paintballs, and um, that's always a sad thing when you are paintballing and you have stuff left over, because paintballs end up getting harder and brittle the more that they age and whatever, you'd really like to just use them all up. <clears throat> so I had this stuff in the back of my car, and I had already arranged with my friend Jamie. Um, if I were a regular teacher here, you would have heard of Jamie already. <laughs> Uh, my my boyfriend, boyhood best friend. Jamie and I had a lot of adventures together, and this was one of them. Well, he worked at Pick and Save um, in Oconomowoc, and so as I picked him up for his 10 o'clock shift, p.m., 10 p.m. shift, he wanted to hear about my adventures with paintballs that day, and he was inspired, and it took about, I don't know, um, a minute and 30 seconds for this idea to occur to him that we should drive by the front windows of Pick and Save, and he would lean out the window and, and rapid fire shoot all of the front display windows of, of Pick and Save, and I would drive by, then we'd go around back, I'd drop them off, and I'd go home. Sounds like a fantastic idea. Let's do it. <laughs> really, it, it was like bing, 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 done. So he grabs the paintballs and makes sure it's all loaded, and he's got the gun, and again, really, this took like 90 seconds from the time I picked him up till the time we decided that this is what we were going to do. And we find ourselves in the country at the five points. <clears throat> and we see a, a Chevette that comes to the intersection. And we look at it. Sure enough, that's Dan and Ricky. Now, this is the summertime. And they buzz, buzz off. And Jamie and I look at each other. Let's change tactics. Let's leave, let's leave, pick and save, and let's go after Dan and Ricky. So we go after Dan and Ricky. 
But Dan, as a classmate of ours, not a friend of ours, but a classmate of ours, um, Dan was driving in the country in the summertime like teenagers drive, not at 45 miles an hour, not even at 55 miles an hour, not even at 65 miles an hour. So catching up with Dan was a trick. But we finally caught up with him. I swerve into the passing lane. As we're passing him, Jamie's leaning out the window. Pow, 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 pow. We just did a drive-by. I'm going fast enough that I pull in front of him, slam on the brakes, pull in a driveway. Off he goes. Ha, 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 that was a great time. And we don't think anything more of it. I drop him off at pick and save. We don't do the drive-by pick and save. And uh, instead, we go our own, our own ways. Jamie calls me up about two weeks later, and he says, we got to talk. There's a detective from the Waukesha Police Department. He's talking to a friend of mine whose license plate has the same last three digits as yours. They're looking for somebody who did a paintball drive-by. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? I don't know what we're going to do. I think about it. What does this have to do with our story today? This is an opportunity for my inside to match my outside, or am I going to start my life of crime, right? <laughs> am I going to start on the lam at 16, running from the authorities, or am I going to do what's right? Because that's what you do. Well... It took a little back and forth, but finally I said to Jamie, we, we got we to turn ourselves in. So I call up Dan, and I call up Ricky, and I get Dan's dad, and Dan's, given, Dan's dad's giving me an earful. So we invite him to come over to our living room, and I tell him how sorry I am and how wrong it was, and that I'm going to go and turn myself in to the police, and you know what happened to him. Well, it turns out that because it was a summer night, his window was down. <clears throat> so when Jamie leaned out the door and pow, 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 it was going th through the car. And so about three of the seven rounds that Jamie shot went in one window and out the other. But then another one broke open over the inside roof of his car. Another one hit Dan in the side of the head, and another one exploded uh, in the corner of the other side of, of the windshield. So, um, I really endangered Dan and Ricky's life um, in this plan, which, again, it didn't occur to Jamie and I that anything bad could happen. In my house, we call that a frontal lobe failure, if you know about brain development. The ability to test and reason wasn't really good. So when Dan told me that, I thought, oh, now I feel more guilt, not just fear, but real guilt. So I apologized. Dan said, that's okay. His parents said, that's okay, but you're doing the right thing. You do need to follow through. I said, I will. And Dan said, I'm not going to press charges. I said, that's so nice of you. So I went over to the sheriff's department, the Waukesha Sheriff's Department, that very night, and I talked to the deputy who was at the desk. And he said, nobody can talk to you now, but do you know that that's assault with a deadly weapon? We use those in training all the time. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, ah, it's a felony, blah, 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 blah. It's like, so I said, Jamie, we're, we're in real trouble. 
well, what this guy said, we need to show up after the briefing in the morning at the police department because I went to the wrong place. So we get our, our ties on. <laughs> we look nice. We wait till the briefing's over, and we talk to Detective What's-His-Name. And the detective says, boys, you did the right thing by coming in. Do you know that even though Dan doesn't want to press charges, we could? No, I didn't know that. <laughs> yes, we could. But seeing as you did the right thing, I'll let you off with a warning. Are you going to do something like this again? No, we'll never do anything like this again. Okay. Now, that was 1990. If that happened today, they'd confiscate our guns, they'd put us in juvie, right? They'd do all kinds of stuff because they're done screwing around with kids like us. But in 1990, that wasn't happening all that often, so we kind of got in on the front end of all that stuff. <clears throat> that being said, I didn't know what was going to happen. And what I knew from the sheriff was that I'd committed assault with a deadly weapon, <clears throat> that it was a felony, that the detectives were looking for us, and that it would be better for them if I encountered them rather than them encountering me. That's what I knew. So integrity for me in that moment appeared to be extremely costly. But I followed through. Did what was right because it was the right thing to do. And it actually led to blessing in the fact that I didn't have to hide anymore. And that leads us to our last point. If you've made a promise, follow through. If you've made a promise, follow through. So there's a song by Chapin, Harry Chapin and his wife called Cats in the Cradle. Some of you might be familiar with it. That's a story about broken promises, right? That's what's haunting about that particular song is because the, the dad in the song is a nice guy, right? He's kind. He's thoughtful. He wants to have a relationship with his son, and his son keeps saying, hey, do you want to play today? Do you, you want to throw around the ball? Do you want to be together today? And what's the dad in the song saying all the time? Oh, I'd love to. I really want to. I just can't. Not today. But another time? I'd love to, but I can't. Maybe another day. What is that? That's a promise-breaking dad. And then what is the legacy of that promise-breaking dad? He raises a kid just like him, right? Nice kid, kind, thoughtful, but a promise-breaker just like his dad. Oh, dad, I'd love to stop by, but you know, we got stuff going on. I just can't. And that haunting line, my son has grown up to be just like me, a promise breaker. Nice guys can break promises. Kind guys can break promises. Be a promise keeper. James chapter 5, verse 12, James, the brother of Jesus, is quoting directly what Jesus had said decades earlier. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Do what you say. Say what you do. Follow through on promises. Promises are tied to your integrity. That's why they're costly. That's why they're valuable. 
If you've made a promise, follow through.